Well, this is the final installment of our, our Sunday School on the three forms of unity. Uh, the first form of unity that we looked over was the Heidelberg Catechism. That was the teaching tool that we, we use in the continental Reformed tradition. It was written in 1563. It's from Germany. And then we looked at the Belgic Confession, and the Belgic Confession would be similar to like the Westminster Confession. It's what the, the officers subscribe to. Well, we subscribe to all three forms of unity in our church, but uh, this was kind of like the, here's the systematic theology of our church. Uh, that's what the Belgic Confession was, and we looked at that last time. And today, we're going to look at the Canons of Dort, or Canons of Dort, or Dortrecht, is the, the full name of the city. You know, we call them canons because they're heavy hitters, not really. Uh, but these are, these are the big guns. Uh, so the canons of Dort. Uh, it's dealing with what's oftentimes called the five points of Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism. If you've heard of Tulip, that's where this comes from. Uh, it was a mnemonic uh, a pastor gave to these five points. Now we say they're the five points of Calvinism, but Calvinism's a little more complicated than that, right? And Calvin talked about more than just total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I decided I'd bring in Calvin's Institutes just to show kind of these are pretty thick. <laughs> pretty thick. He's talking about a lot more than just five points of grace here in these books. These are the Institutes. Great books if you get the chance to read them, uh, but they're long. He's got a lot to say about a lot of different things. Um, but anyway, I thought we'd start by reading Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, <coughs> Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that 
we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And we'll stop. We'll stop there. Um, you know, I remember I went to a, a pretty large Christian college, Liberty, uh, and it was Southern Baptist. It's a good school. I liked it. Uh, but we had about 70 guys on a hall in our dorm. And you can imagine about 10 o'clock at night dealing with uh, just people from all over the place theologically. What do you think happened? Lots of arguments, lots of bickering back and forth over points of contention in doctrine. And without a doubt, predestination came up many times <laughs> in our dorm. Um, lots of arguing about that. One thing I remember when I was going to the, the church I was a part of, that one of the, the men preached on Ephesians 1, and he said, you know what you don't see here? Arguing. You don't see dissension as Paul's laying out this doctrine of predestination, it's actually something that's very warm and centering for the church. Right? Think, of, think of the tone here in Ephesians 1. It's something that calls all the church to just remember how God in love predestined you for salvation in Christ. That's something we ought to be living out of. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Uh, this should be something that just centers us as a body. And I thought that was really powerful. Right, that he doesn't have to argue for it. Um, but there are those who will detract and those who will say, no, we have a problem with this or that. And that's where the canons of Dort uh, come up. The church, in the, the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, had always taught predestination, uh, but they had a challenge coming to them from a pastor and a professor at one of their theological colleges there in Leiden, the name was uh, Arminius, was the guy's name, uh, Jacob Arminius. And, of course, we know Arminianism today is, is another school of thought opposed to Calvinism. They want to champion, you know, free will, so-called, uh, versus predestination. Of course, we believe in free will as well. Uh, we define it differently than the Arminians do. But there was a big, a big fight over, basically, how does God save sinners? How does God save sinners? And so Arminius died in 1609, and he had been teaching this. And basically, he's breaking his vow. So professors and uh, pastors were, were called to subscribe in good faith, or subscribe to the, the Belgic Confession. And Belgic Confession, Article 16 on election teaches predestination. I have it there in your, uh, in your handout, but you could say the canons of Dort are basically one long footnote on Belgic Article 16. I'll just read that. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just, he is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness 
without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving others in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. And so Arminius is going to have a few problems with that. And he begins teaching people who would go into ministry uh, that actually God does consider your works. God elects based on maybe foreseen faith, maybe he saw something in you. Uh, it's not unconditional. And so he's actually breaking his vow. It's dishonest. Um, but his followers become known as the remonstrants. So they're protesting against the doctrine that the church is putting forward. And so they call a national synod, the National Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619, to deal with this great debate that's been raging. There's almost a civil war in the Netherlands over this. There's, there's big doings, lots of politics involved. Uh, and so they say, we need to have a national synod to iron this out. We need to be unified as a church going forward. Uh, and so they have this national synod Great book on it, if you want to get into it. This is uh, by my professor. It's written so that, kind of, so entry-level stuff. See, it's not too, too crazy with the vocabulary he's using, but, but for the grace of God. And this is an exposition of the canons of Dort. If you have questions about what's this Calvinism stuff, this would be a great book to read. Uh, but you can see this is one of the famous paintings, and you have a lot of delegates here. This is really international. You have delegates from the Netherlands. You have delegates from Germany, delegates from England, from Scotland, from Switzerland. It was an international synod in that, in that sense. They said, we want to teach the Reformed tradition uh, as we understand it around the world at that time. They even invited France, but France was unable to come. The king said, you can go. But uh, when you try to come back, we're not going to let you in the country. And so there's some empty seats here in memorial to the French delegates that weren't able to, to make it out. Um, so that was unfortunate. I'm sure they would have loved to have had the French come. But, yeah, just, I think, a powerful testimony to how international and ecumenical this council really was. It's not just like a narrow thing. This was, this was where... This is the Reformed faith. Um, what do you guys notice in Article 16 there in the handout? Does anything stick out to you as far as uh, what, what it's saying about election? Uh, Dr. Venema. Yeah, Cornelis Venema. And you can get this book, uh, Reformed Fellowship is the publisher. They got some good, some good stuff. I think that's who published uh, Pastor Jackson's book on Ruth, actually, Reformed Fellowship. But yeah. Yeah, just and merciful. Wants to highlight both. Yeah. 
you know. Yeah, so the, it's not arbitrary is the point, right? Some people, when they, they hear about this idea of election, they think God is going around, hmm, I'm going to elect you, I'm going to send you to hell. Elect, send to hell, elect, send to hell. And it's totally arbitrary. That's not how the Belgic talks about it, and it's not how the canons of Dort talk about it either. Uh, it's the way that they're formulating is saying that man has fallen into sin by his own free will, and God chooses to save some from that sin and elects to pass over and say, thy will be done uh, to some sinners. So that's, that's good. That's kind of, I think that's a helpful way of, uh, one of the helpful things about our confessions is the way it talks about that. It, it kind of causes people to say, oh, maybe, maybe I'm looking at a caricature of what I thought Calvinism was. Anybody notice anything else? Okay, that's fine. We can, we can move on from there. Um, you know, we could say there's asymmetry in election, in other words. It's not symmetrical between election and reprobation. Um, but the canons of Dort, then, they're written in response to what Arminius and his followers were saying that were, was contradicting this. And it's divided up into five heads of doctrine. No, it's not, they're not titled tulip. Uh, that's, that's English. And, um, but tulip's much catch, catchier than um, kind of what you have here in the canons. So the first head of doctrine would be divine election and reprobation. That would be unconditional election. Uh, the second would be Christ's death and human redemption through it, which would be limited atonement or particular redemption, effective atonement, you could say. And then the third and the fourth points are actually put together. So it has to do with total depravity and uh, irresistible grace. They call it human corruption, conversion to God, and the way it occurs, not nearly as catchy. Tulip? When, when did Tulip? Yeah. I th I'm not sure when exactly it first started. I think I remember reading somewhere that it might have been a Presbyterian in America in the 1800s that, that first penned Tulip. But, uh, so not necessarily what they had in mind. And I, I don't know Dutch, so I can't say it were. If they had a handy, handy mnemonic there. But uh, Yeah, so they, each point has a rejection of errors, so they go through. The remonstrants had written kind of their manifesto of what they thought needed to change in the church, and they go through point by point, and they say, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. So if you're, if you're curious, I would, I would say read it for yourself. We'll get kind of a, a bird's-eye view this morning on, uh, on what the points are teaching, but... Uh, I have there, for total depravity, uh, it explains then, 
first, how the, what was the fall and how it spread, and then in Head 3, 4, Article 3, we have the doctrine of total inability, total inability. It says, therefore, all people are conceived in sin, because we believe in original sin, right? we're all given Adam's sin, and we all, of course, then follow up with our own actual sin. Uh, all people are conceived in sin and born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. So what are some things you, you see that, yeah, Betty? Yeah, so the remonstrants, they had some different opinions, but they were saying that if you used the light of nature really well, then maybe God would kind of meet you halfway. Right? So you're, you're kind of like, uh, we, we would say that you're morally unable to do it. They would say, well, you're at a disadvantage, but you know, maybe if you try really hard, you could, you could get there. That was one of their, one of the remonstrance points. Right. Yeah. So the modern might say, we need to make the first move. We need to initiate, and then God will meet us. We'd say no. <laughs> Uh, it's exactly the opposite. So God has met us with grace, and that's why we respond. You know, I'm not 100% sure. If, I'm, I'm sure they would have some, maybe, scriptures that they misinterpret to get to where they are. Um, but one of the things, you could, you could talk about Arminianism, especially the Remonstrant Church, if you see where it goes down the centuries. It's really kind of rationalism. It's rationalism, and you can see where it goes following pretty quickly on the heels of this. Uh, they start messing with doctrine of God, uh, all sorts of things. And this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg in that drift. That's a great point. Sometimes people will say, uh, "Yeah, some people really want to go to heaven, but God won't let them. They really want to love Christ, but God won't let them. And that's not at all <laughs> what the Bible teaches. And this, this article is saying, absolutely not. That's not the case whatsoever. Uh, notice what it says about our wills, right? Our wills are slaves to sin. So you do exactly what you want, is our conception of free will. You do exactly what you want, but your, your will is actually enslaved to sin. It's in bondage because you've been corrupted. So God is just in saying, 
your will be done. Do whatever you want. Uh, the problem is us. The problem falls on sinful man, not on God. Right? Because we choose to reject God. We choose to sin every day. And God, of course, is then just in saying, have it your way. Uh, but he's merciful <laughs> in plucking us out and regenerating us by the Spirit. That's what election is teaching. We're, not, we're so distorted that we would never reform ourselves. So that's important. God sends people to hell because of sin. Because of sin. That's, that's the reason. That's why we deserve hell. So that's, that's a really key, key article to look at, that idea of total depravity, because if you don't understand that, I don't think you, you're going to really have ears to understand what we're saying when we talk about election. Uh, but let's look at the next article there. I'm going to kind of speed up here. Unconditional election, which was actually what they led with. This was the first head of doctrine that the canons lay out. Article 7 on election. Election, or choosing, is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As Scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us, whom he adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which he freely made us pleasing to himself and his beloved. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you can see they're, they're pulling on Ephesians 1, which we read, really echoing the language there. And then Romans 8, another great spot to go to for this doctrine. What are some things you notice in this article? There's a lot going on there. Does anything stick out? Yes, Scott. Right. Yeah, 
the secret things belong to the Lord, and it's God's will. And that's the thing that it's highlighting. It's unconditional. It's based on God's good pleasure. Uh, So we we entrust that to him as his creatures. Brett. Those are great points. Those are great points. Yeah, she was saying, if you couldn't hear, uh, she brought up Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9 to 11. They can be, a, it's a hard passage uh, to think through. It can be offensive to us at first if we're not, we're not used to hearing these things. But uh, Romans 9 is pretty clear about predestination. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before they did good or bad, right, in their mother's womb. That's pretty radical stuff there in Romans 9. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it's always interesting how when you, you can tell you're tracking with the biblical author when you bring up these points and then the person you're talking to brings up exactly <laughs> kind of the argument that is levied against what Paul is saying in Scripture. Who are you, O man, to bring a challenge to God? Yeah, Dale.
sure. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it's it's you're to you're saved to holiness, um, and that's something that often people will say. Well, if you're elect, then you know it doesn't. I'll be saved, and it doesn't matter what I do. So I might as well sin away. Right? That's often a challenge that people will um, kind of smear on Calvinism. Yeah. Yeah. But well, that's obviously not the truth, right? Um, if I'm elect, I'll be saved no matter what I do, so who cares, right? I might as well just live any old way. And this is, this is totally wrong. This isn't scriptural, and this isn't what our... If you actually read what Calvinism is saying, it's not saying that at all. Uh, it's saying that a good tree will bear good fruit, right? And God changes. He does heart surgery on us. He regenerates us so that we now live regenerate lives. We now live for the good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's Ephesians 10, or 2.10. We're we're saved by grace alone through faith, not of works, but we're saved to good works that we should walk in them. Uh, and, And I would encourage you especially to read this article or this head of doctrine uh, on unconditional election, head one in the canons of Dort this afternoon. Really powerful stuff, and they deal so pastorally with issues. Uh, it talks about, I'll just give you a few, a few things. Article 14 is going to deal with, um, you know, how do, we, how do we teach this doctrine? Do we just go in willy-nilly teaching it? Uh, it says, no, we want to be humble. We don't want to inquire too deeply. The secret things belong to the Lord. We shouldn't try to figure out God's secret will. We should keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Uh, that's, that's really what we're called to do as Christians, right? We preach Christ uh, as Savior and Lord. And then it even deals with uh, the issue of infants that, that die before they reach the age of discretion. And how should we teach about that? That's a heavy topic, but it was one that was very, very common in those days. And they say those who are uh, Christians, those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, have no reason whatsoever to doubt the salvation of their infants that die in their infancy. Uh, Just showing great pastoral concern for the people of God. Uh, Really, really powerful stuff that I'd recommend to you. But let's, let's move on. We've got to keep going. We're almost out of time. We'll get to limited atonement, or not really a great name, limited atonement, I don't think, but particular redemption or effective atonement maybe would be better. Uh, but I like Article 3 there. I chose that one for you. The infinite value of Christ's death. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, 
more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. More than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. And then it goes on from there in the articles that follow to talk about then the mandate that Christ has given to preach the gospel, the older translations would say, promiscuously, without discrimination, to all nations, to all peoples. Uh, How shall they hear unless they send a preacher? That's what God has commanded us to do. He's commanded us to go and preach the gospel to everyone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we see there that God does love the world. He sent his Son to die for every people group. Uh, and whosoever believes, that's who's going to be saved, is how, is how I understand it. That's important. Always keep reading. 17 and 18 certainly do help clarify. Um, And yet we do say that, you know, Article 8 would say there's a serious call of the gospel. And so we go out in confidence. We don't don't go out trying to second guess and peer into God's secret decree. Am I talking to the elect or am I talking to somebody who's not elect? Article 8 says, Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Seriously, he also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. That's our responsibility. We say, come to the Savior, be saved. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's what's given to us to do. Uh, we're not here to sort out and to go into God's secret will. That's God's job. That's not us. We go and we preach the gospel. We say, come to Jesus and be saved. He will save you if you come. And we understand that it's the Spirit that enables people to do that. Uh, but we preach the gospel. Yeah, Mike.
Yeah. Yeah, we go in good faith. It's a universal call. Very good. Uh, but this is really, I think, the next article, Article 8 here. I think this is, this is getting at the nub of what this, this point of doctrine is getting at. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail. Without fail, that's the idea. It's effective. He'll lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, and he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, and he should have faithfully preserved them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. So here's the, here's the million-dollar question. If Christ's death is ineffective to redeem, what then becomes the thing that makes atonement effective? If, it's, if it doesn't depend on Christ's death upon the cross, who does it depend on? Ultimately, it would depend on us. And we've already said that we're totally depraved that our wills are enslaved to sin and that we've rejected God and would continue to reject God. And so no one, no one would be saved if that were the case. And so it wants to point out Christ's death is effective at accomplishing what it was meant to do, which is save the elect. Who are the ones who will believe? That's the question. And that's a great point about we want to use the whole of Scripture when we, when we talk about these things. Um, and, and you brought up one of the questions there that I wanted to ask everybody. How do you think these doctrines should affect? We're not going to have time to do everything here. I would encourage you to read through the rest. But how should this affect how we do evangelism? How should this affect how we do mission? Should this be like cramping our style, or should this, uh, should this cause us to go out in boldness? Yeah, Brett, what do you... Oh, 
Okay, well, let, not the Savior, right? Jesus is the Savior, and we go in obedience to his command to go preach the gospel to every creature, and that's, that's what we're called to do. So it helps us, it comforts us when we go out and do evangelism. It comforts us as we struggle in our sanctification, right? Our growth and holiness throughout life. We know that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Um, and so we can, we can struggle in confidence looking to our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. What a difference just knowing that the Holy Spirit's been working in somebody before you even show up, right? You just show up, you share a scripture with them, and they, they react in such a way like, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit working in their heart, and God is bringing me into that situation, that story, by his sovereign grace to preach the word to them at that moment that they might believe. Right, what a, what a change in perspective that is, that God is really using men and women today in his story of redemption to save the lost. That, that, I think, should just make us joyous when we get to evangelize. You know, God has got his hands on all of us, and he's using all of us as his body here in this world to, to call others in to the, the love that God has for his people. Yeah, Betty.
Yeah, William Carey, the father of modern missions, he was a devout Calvinist, Calvinistic Baptist, um, and he, <laughs> he was very faithful. His book was An Inquiry into the Means Which God Uses to Convert the Heathens, or something like that. Um, yeah, Calvinism should drive us forward, knowing that God is faithful to his promises, his word will not return to him void, and he said, turn unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. So we're just taking God at his word and going out in confidence because of his word. So I hope it's a comfort. I, I know that these are new confessions to us, uh, you know, the Belgic, the Heidelberg, the Canons of Dort, but those are just new tools in your, in your uh, toolbox now. I hope as a church you can, you can come back, take a look at them maybe, be a little bit more familiar. And I hope it shows just kind of the broadness of God's church. God's church is huge. It's international. It's been around forever, and it will be around forever. It's indestructible. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And so uh, just a, a good way of fellowshipping one with another, uh, with some brothers from maybe on the continent. Little, they have an accent. You guys have an accent. We all have accents. Uh, but we're saying the same thing. And so with that, uh, we'll, we'll close. I'll just pray for us, and then we'll go get coffee. Our Father, we do thank you for the wonderful news of your gospel that saves dead sinners, Lord, that you call us out of darkness, you call us out of the grave into your marvelous light, Lord, that you regenerate the dead, the totally depraved, and you resurrect us in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Be with us today, we pray. Uh, be with our worship service upcoming and give us uh, ears to hear, hearts to, to love Jesus Christ, we pray. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.